Uh, This morning, we are starting a new sermon series, uh, but one that, as Jamie mentioned before, we've actually done already once before. In fact, if you've been with us the last few years, you know that every January, uh, we preach the same exact sermon series, almost literally the same four identical sermon topics, looking at how the gospel of Jesus Christ brings greater social, economic, and spiritual justice in our world. Now, why the repetition? Uh, Well, for one, tomorrow starts the Christian season of Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is a time every year where we join with Christians around the world, where after Advent and Christmas, where we celebrate the coming of Jesus, now in Epiphany, during the month of January, we celebrate and look at the mission of Jesus in our world. But more particularly, just even for our church here today, my guess is, if you are the average Winter Park person, this time of year, you are feeling a particular sense of drive, this renewed vision and purpose for life that you want to tackle the world with. And so what we want to do is, in this moment, harness that energy, but focus it instead on what Jesus Christ has done for us in the gospel and about how, who he's calling us to be in the world because of the gospel. Uh, and so what we're going to do over the next three weeks uh, is look at particularly how the gospel informs topics of sanctity of life, racial reconciliation, church planting, but today we're going to kind of set the foundation for all of that. Uh, so read with me if you got your Bibles out, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Luke says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside, and he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I know that you are probably all more than aware of the imminent 2020 presidential campaign. Uh, Over the last few months, Countless people, dozens and dozens it seems like of people, have been announcing their bid to run for the presidency. And now they all have one thing in common when they do that. They all start off their bid, their run for the presidency, by giving some sort of inaugural address to launch their campaign, where in it, they lay out their plans, their mission for what they should do should they win. Luke 4, that we just read, is in many ways Jesus' inaugural address. 
Now, the Old Testament scholar Chris Wright uh, calls this Jesus, Jesus Nazareth Manifesto. You see, in verses 14 and 15, Luke gives us uh, this summary of Jesus' first ever preaching tour, uh, where he comes to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, preaching around all the synagogues, and people are amazed at what he says. But then in verse 16, Luke focuses in on one particular example that probably best reflects everything Jesus has been saying. And it's this example that Wright calls Jesus' Nazareth Manifesto, where as God in the flesh, Jesus lays out his mission, his plans for what he'll do when he's in rule for the salvation of all of his creation. That as he, but what he tells the people in Luke 4 uh, actually isn't really what they want to hear. In fact, if you keep reading on the verses after this, the people get so enraged at what Jesus has said he's come to do, they try to throw him off a cliff. They try to kill him. So, what is it that Jesus has said he's come to do? That's the vital question for us to ask today. If you're a Christian, to know the mission of Christianity, and if you're not, to know the message of Christianity. So in this short sermon of Jesus, I think we can see from Luke two parts of Jesus' plan for the world. That Jesus says that he has come to restore those socially in need and redeem those spiritually in need. So first, Jesus comes, he says, to restore those socially in need. After, again, Luke gives this kind of summary in the first couple of verses of Jesus' first preaching tour, he focuses in on this one particular instance and says that after getting the scroll, uh, Jesus has the scroll of Isaiah handed to him, he reads from Isaiah 61 in his first ever sermon, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, um, the imagery that Isaiah is drawing on here in this prophecy actually comes from the book of Leviticus uh, in something that's called the year of Jubilee, uh, or as Isaiah calls it here, the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, now, the year of Jubilee uh, was this uh, command in the Old Testament that God gave his people to do once every 50 years, where during this, debts were forgiven, slaves were set free, and land was restored back to its owners. The whole point of the year of Jubilee was to structurally ensure that any sort of systemic oppression that was happening among God's people got reset. And it had two main aspects to it. Uh, socially, the Jubilee was about protecting families. Uh, in that time, the family unit your father's house and just kind of your extended family that all lived together, that was your primary place of identity, of status, of security. But what would happen is, after time, uh, families would sometimes accrue debt as a family, so sizable 
uh, that members of the family would have to leave their household, go be servants uh, in someone else's household so that they could pay off the debt. Um, but it would break up the family, sometimes for generations, depending on the size of the debt. And so during the year of Jubilee, debts were forgiven and servants were allowed to go back home, restoring families back together who had been broken apart because of economic debt and misfortune. Economically, though, the Jubilee was about protecting land. So in that time, land, land was your bank account. That was the currency. When the nation of Israel was formed, the whole country was divided up amongst all the different families. Everyone was given a set piece of property to own. But what happened was over time, uh, some families had to sell their property. And so to ensure that the whole nation didn't become owned by a select few of the wealthy of the wealthiest, during the year of Jubilee, land was given back to the families who originally owned it but had lost it because they had to sell it for whatever reason. Now, this is not some sort of socialist uh, redistribution of wealth. Right? This is restoring back to families land that was originally theirs so that, on the other hand, some form of ancient hyper-capitalism didn't mean that we had 2% of the country owning the entire land, owning all the money, having all the power in it. And it's this year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, this socio-economic restoration that Isaiah uses to describe God's plan for a new era and a new jubilee-like salvation for his people. And so it's after reading this prophecy that Jesus, in verse 21, rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened, fixed on him. And he says to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that he's come to bring this jubilee salvation. He's come to establish God's reign in our world, this promised new era where debts are forgiven, slaves are free, the poor are restored, not just spiritually though, physically too. See, some people... Uh, take this passage here in Isaiah to be solely talking about metaphors for the spiritual deliverance that Jesus has come to bring. We'll see later. It is absolutely that too. But we can't miss the physical implications of this too because Jesus won't let us. See, a couple chapters later in Luke, uh, John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to ask Jesus, why are you here? What are you doing? And Jesus tells uh, his disciples to go back and tell John this. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and good news is preached to the poor. And those aren't metaphors there. No, Jesus is saying he's come to bring an act of God in our world so comprehensive that it will result in a complete restoration of all of his creation. Not just the spiritual, but the physical too. And my guess is, uh, this is probably something that if you're, if you're not a Christian or kind of on the fence about Christianity, this is probably something that you can uh, admire, 
or maybe at least respect about Christianity. Uh, Today, a lot of people uh, in the Western world here in America, a lot of people today uh, are very aware and attuned and concerned about the well-being of the poor, the disenfranchised, the oppressed, the outcast of our society, and spend a lot of time, spend a lot of energy trying to serve them. And thank God for that. But if that's you, let me ask you, where does that sense uh, of social action come from? See, a lot of people would say, my motivation uh, to serve the poor, for instance, doesn't come from Christianity, doesn't really come from any religion. In fact, it doesn't have to. It comes from reason, science. That's where I find it. That's a pretty commonly held belief today, that things like the equality of all people uh, that we use as a foundation to serve the poor, the disenfranchised, the oppressed in our community, that that didn't come from religion. In fact, it can't come from religion. That it came from something like the Enlightenment in the 1700s, where after centuries of oppressive religion, mankind finally freed his mind. And it's out of that that we get these ideas of uh, the equal dignity of all people and of every person in our society deserving equal opportunity to the same resources, the same possibilities. But actually, a lot of people who aren't Christians at all have spent some time showing that actually what we credit today to things like logic, reason, science, to something like the Enlightenment, it's actually all borrowing from Christianity. Larry Seidentop, who for many years taught at Oxford over in England, has spent a lot of time showing that what we credit today for why we serve the needy, why we serve the poor in our community, uh, actually is all borrowing from the Apostle Paul. That his preaching the gospel in the first century revolutionized the way that we understand humanity and modern secular thought is merely borrowing off of that today. Uh, Brian Tierney, not a Christian man as well, teaches at Cornell University, uh, has spent a lot of time writing about one particular example of this, about how the church in the Middle Ages showed the same things that we see today, long before the Enlightenment ever happened, that when America was discovered, there was this controversy over how the Native Americans should be treated. And one of the biggest advocates for treating them with equal dignity was a Spanish man who based his whole argument off of his orthodox Christian beliefs long before the Enlightenment, long before things like reason and logic ever freed our minds to discover these things. And this is why Friedrich Nietzsche, a philosopher in the 1800s who was an incredible outspoken critic of Christianity, at the same time criticized people in his day who tried to throw out the baby Jesus but keep the bathwater who tried to serve and tell other people they needed to serve the poor, the needy, give equal dignity, equal opportunity to everybody in their society without any sort of Christian foundation. Nietzsche laughed at them. He said, you don't get it. Everything you're talking about is borrowing from the Christian message of the gospel. Without it, you have zero moral foundation whatsoever to tell me why I should serve or give my time or sacrifice a single thing for anybody else around me. 
but in Jesus Christ. We see the only God of any world religion who became poor himself, who was born in a cattle stall to an unmarried woman, who as a child was a refugee, who spent his adult life without a place to lay his head, who died on a trash heap on the outskirts of town, and who during his life served those with physical needs with this other-centered, sacrificial love that was a result of this jubilee salvation that he came to bring, and he's calling us as his church to spread. You see, part of our calling as a church is to spread this jubilee-like salvation that we can see back in Leviticus and in Isaiah 61, to engage people and structures in our society to restore those socially in need. But not in the same method as something like the Jubilee in the Old Testament, but in a similar manner. You see, the economic aspects of the Jubilee, where debts were forgiven, slaves were set free, what it was ultimately doing was giving people equal access to the same resources equal opportunity to provide for themselves, participate in society. And the social aspect of the Jubilee, where land was restored back to families, it was ultimately upholding the dignity and value of individual families. And so part of our calling as a church today is to creatively find ways in our culture, in our society, to do those same exact things in the name of Jesus which over the next three weeks, we're going to spend some more time looking in-depth at that. But so, God's calling, Jesus' role, or God's plan, Jesus' role, our calling, it's through this that we can see Jesus first came to restore those socially in need. But second, Jesus tells us he ultimately came to redeem those spiritually in need. You see, there's two senses that we can uh, understand this jubilee salvation that Jesus is saying he's come to fulfill. Uh, in one sense, there's the physical aspect of it, the fulfillment of the socioeconomic restoration that was the year of jubilee. But in another sense, there's a spiritual fulfillment of this, the fulfillment of the personal redemption of the great jubilee God's saying he's bringing. And so to see how Jesus does this, there's four questions that we need to ask quickly to see how he has come also to redeem those spiritually in need. First, who are the poor, blind, captive, and oppressed that he's talking about? Because you see, in one sense, we, we do, I really believe, have to read this literally. Uh, but the verses in Isaiah that Jesus is quoting from have taken on a deeper significance to them than what the year of Jubilee in Leviticus was, all, was uh, originally referring to. You see, when Isaiah was writing this prophecy, he was writing it to God's people while they were in exile, while they were prisoners, captive, poor, not in their own land, servants to another country, but we can't feel entirely sorry for them. 
Uh, you see, they are there in part on their own terms. Part of what Jesus quotes from here in Isaiah actually doesn't come from chapter 61. It actually is a little snippet from Isaiah 58, where in it, God gives this scathing rebuke to his people, who though financially comfortably and well off, do this yearly fast in honor of God to show them how humble they are before them, while at the meantime, they are oppressing poor and underprivileged people underneath them. And God says, no, I'm having none of that. And what Jesus quotes from there in Isaiah 58 is just one example of where God's people in the Old Testament, though outwardly, looking like spiritually, they've got it all together, inwardly, are showing they're completely lost, completely sinful people who don't understand a thing about God's grace. It's these people in exile experiencing the consequences, the judgment of their sin that they can't change, experiencing their deep spiritual need for God's mercy that Isaiah calls the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed, who God's going to set free. And Jesus is saying, he's come to fulfill this too, jubilee-like salvation to all people, to anyone who recognizes they have a deep spiritual need that they can't redeem on their own. You see, our normal way of approaching God is kind of through these scales, right? We realize we're not perfect, we're realistic about ourselves, but we think, you know what, that's okay, because as long as the good in my life outweighs the bad, then surely God will accept me, right? That's not exactly the way it works. Now, in fact, if you read in the Bible, it says that all it takes one sin to eternally condemn you, and no amount of good can outweigh that. You can think of it this way. Um, as of Wednesday this last week, the U.S. national debt was just over $23 trillion. Now, I want you to imagine for a second that that number is your personal credit card debt right now. Let's all just sit in the anxiety of that for a moment, feel the heart rate come up. How's everybody feeling? Now, if that was your personal credit card debt, you went wild this Christmas. You bought gifts for everyone you could think of, people you didn't even know, just walking down the sidewalk. Here you go. How would you pay that off? I mean, think about this. The richest person in the world, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, has got a net worth of roughly $116 billion, which sounds like a lot, but to pay that off, you'd have to be 200 times richer than the richest person in the world. And congratulations, now you're just back to zero. You're flat broke. Meaning, if that was your personal credit card debt, it would be catastrophic. It would be life-ending. There'd be no way you'd get under that. Jesus is saying in Luke 4, he's come to redeem people who recognize they have a catastrophic $23 trillion spiritual debt. That because of their sin, no amount of good can outweigh the bad, and that nothing in themselves that they can muster up can ultimately redeem themselves. 
He's come to redeem people who, like the Israelites and Isaiah, when they're in exile, were called to do, confess that ultimately, spiritually, they are poor, blind, prisoners to sin, whose lives are held captive by things like money, sex, power, other people's opinions, who are oppressed by things like an abusive childhood, a failing marriage, people who confess that on their own, there is zero spiritual health in them. That even the best things they have ever managed to do are ultimately filthy rags. And that nothing in them can change that. These are the people that God sent Jesus for. That like the uh, line in the hymn goes, he welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor, because they're his mission. That as Jesus himself said, he came not for the righteous, not for the people who thought they've had it, they got it all together, they have no need for Jesus in their life. No, he says, I came for sinners. I came for people who recognize that they don't measure up and that that's the whole point. And instead, they're going to trust that I can measure up for them. So do you recognize your deep spiritual need? You know, if you read on the Gospels, um, Jesus gives some indicators of people who recognize their deep spiritual need, people who are ready to receive his grace and love. Here's just a few of them. Uh, You realize your greatest problem in life is not outside of you, but inside of you. You're overwhelmed less by the character flaws of other people and more by your own. You have experiences in your past of pain, hurt, trauma that you are unable to heal by yourself. You recognize you need the presence of Jesus in your life just as much as before coming a Christian as after. You're able to forgive people without holding grudges. You give to those with physical needs without restrictions. These are the people that Jesus is saying he's come for with a message that's different than every other religion that isn't do better, try harder. But instead, you can't. So trust what I've done for you instead. So what did these people get? Second, Isaiah is promising this complete jubilee-like reversal of fortunes where sin's forgiven, not once but forever. Where God doesn't just wipe your slate clean and say, now you get a second chance. No, he breaks the slate in half and throws it away. And where their place And God's loving presence is restored for all eternity. Jesus is saying it's this promised jubilee salvation he's come to fulfill, but not just for God's people. No, this is on offer for anyone who recognizes they need it. Third, who gives it? Well, Isaiah said 
The Spirit had anointed him to proclaim this good news to people. But here's the thing. Isaiah couldn't do anything to make this good news a reality. But here in Luke 4, Jesus is saying he is that same Spirit-anointed prophet who's come, though, not just to proclaim, but to perform this good news. That is, he says, he himself will be the one to set the oppressed free. That he is not just the prophet, but he is the Savior that Isaiah was looking forward to, who's come not just to announce this good news, but to be the good news himself. And fourth, how does he do it then? Well, Jesus actually ends his quote from Isaiah a little early. You see, the full verse that Jesus is quoting from in Isaiah, says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And then he reads on, and then he gets to the end, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. And it's the last part, the day of God's vengeance, of His judgment, that Jesus leaves out. Because here in Luke, Jesus is saying he's come not to bring God's judgment, but to bear God's judgment. Not because he deserved it, though. No, you see, Jesus was the opposite of someone who had any sort of spiritual need in their life. Jesus fulfilled what the Israelites in Isaiah 58 failed to do. He met the needs of the oppressed and the poor around him. He served the least and the needy. He lived himself among the outcast, among the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the political zealots, terrorists. And on the cross, sent by his Father in love, Jesus becomes spiritually poor, blind, captive, oppressed for you. He took on himself the debt that you and me accrued because of our sin through our own devices and through his blood on the cross. He does a balance transfer where our spiritual debt goes to his account and his spiritual riches go to our account so that now through the cross you can experience the greatest jubilee reversal of all time. Where through the cross, Jesus now becomes light to the spiritually blind, riches to the spiritually poor, freedom to the spiritually imprisoned, power to the spiritually oppressed, all through a grace that cost God everything but free to you as long as you admit you need it. So, in conclusion... This is what Jesus is saying he's come to do. This here in Luke 4 is his inaugural address that he's starting his ministry on. That his mission that he's come to do is to fulfill God's great jubilee where he will restore those socially in need and redeem those spiritually in need. And the two of those they have to stay together. You see, Luke 4 is showing us we can't focus solely on the physical mission of Christ 
and neglect the spiritual. But likewise, we can't focus solely on the spiritual and lose sight of the physical. Biblically, the two have to stay together. One is the work of the gospel, Jesus' spiritual mission, the forgiveness of sins through his death, but the other is the outcome of the gospel, Jesus' physical mission to restore everything in his creation. Biblically, the two must stay together, and personally, the two have got to stay together too. See, throughout the New Testament, we read that the mark, someone who understands God's grace, who understands the depth of their spiritual need and the degree to which it's been met through God's generosity in Christ is the degree to which they serve those physically in need around them. That if we look down our nose at those in need, if we stand aloof and distant from them, if we're untouched by their suffering, the New Testament tells us, then you haven't understood God's radical generosity to you in your deep need. The two must stay together. But as Isaiah 61 and Luke 4 is showing us here through Jesus' words, it's the spiritual, it's the gospel of God's forgiveness of our sins through the death of Christ that has to take precedence, that has to take the lead. And when it does, when we experience, when you experience Jesus Christ meeting your greatest spiritual need, it's then that you'll be able to join him in meeting the social needs of those around us. Let's pray. God, we confess this morning we have a deep spiritual need. We on our own are spiritually poor, blind, captive, imprisoned, oppressed. Thank you through your son Christ on the cross. He brought your great jubilee reversal of fortunes so that now we have sight, we have riches, we have freedom, we have a new power all through the blood that he shed on the cross. Holy Spirit, press this word deep into our hearts today and use it to empower us to now respond by meeting the social needs in our community. Amen.